Section 25 of Lovecraft's Influences and Favourites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rafe Ball. Seaton's Aunt by Walter Delamere. Part 1. I had heard rumours of Seaton's aunt long before I actually encountered her. Seaton, in the hush of confidence, or at any little show of toleration on our part, would remark, My aunt, or my old aunt, you know, as if his relative might be a kind of cement to an entente cordiale. He had an unusual quantity of pocket money, or at any rate it was bestowed on him in unusually large amounts, and he spent it freely, though none of us would have described him as an awfully generous chap. "'Hello, Seaton,' he would say. "'The old Begum?' At the beginning of term two he used to bring back surprising and exotic dainties in a box with a trick padlock that accompanied him from his first appearance at Gummidge's in a billycock hat to the rather abrupt conclusion of his school days. From a boy's point of view he looked distastefully foreign with his yellow skin and slow chocolate-coloured eyes and lean, weak figure. Merely for his looks he was treated by most of us true blue Englishmen with condescension, hostility, or contempt. We used to call him Pongo, but without any better excuse for the nickname than his skin. He was, that is, in one sense of the term, what he assuredly was not in the other sense, a sport. Seaton and I were never in any sense intimate at school. Our orbits only intersected in class. I kept instinctively aloof from him. I felt vaguely he was a sneak, and remained quite unmollified by advances on his side, which, in a boy's barbarous fashion, unless it suited me to be magnanimous, I haughtily ignored. We were both of us quick-footed, and at prisoner's base used occasionally to hide together. And so I best remember Seaton, his narrow watchful face in the dusk of summer evening, his peculiar crouch, and his inarticulate whisperings and mumblings. Otherwise he played all games slackly and limply, used to stand and feed at his locker with a crony or two until his tuck gave out, or waste his money on some outlandish fancy or other. He bought, for instance, a silver bangle, which he wore above his left elbow, until some of the fellows showed their masterly contempt of the practice by dropping it nearly red-hot down his neck. It needed, therefore, a rather peculiar taste, a rather rare kind of schoolboy courage and indifference to criticism to be much associated with him, and I had neither the taste nor the courage. Nonetheless, he did make advances, and on one memorable occasion went to the length of bestowing on me a whole pot of some outlandish mulberry-coloured jelly that had been duplicated in his term's supplies. In the exuberance of my gratitude, I promised to spend the next half-term holiday with him at his aunt's house. I had clean forgotten my promise when, two or three days before the holiday, he came up and triumphantly reminded me of it. Well, to tell you the honest truth, Seaton, old chap, I began graciously, but he cut me short. My aunt expects you, he said. She is very glad you are coming. She's sure to be quite decent to you, Withers. I looked at him in some astonishment. The emphasis was unexpected. It seemed to suggest an aunt not hitherto hinted at, 
and a friendly feeling on Seaton's side that was more disconcerting than welcome. We reached his home partly by train, partly by a lift in an empty farm cart, and partly by walking. It was a whole day holiday, and we were to sleep the night. He lent me extraordinary night gear, I remember. The village street was unusually wide, and was fed from a green by two converging roads, with an inn and a high green sign at the corner. About a hundred yards down the street was a chemist's shop, Mr. Tanner's. We descended the two steps into his dusky and odorous interior to buy, I remember, some rat poison. A little beyond the chemist's was the forge. You then walked along a very narrow path, under a fairly high wall, nodding here and there with weeds and tufts of grass, and so came to the iron garden gates, and saw the high flat house behind its huge sycamore. A coach-house stood on the left of the house, and on the right a gate led into a kind of rambling orchard. The lawn lay away over to the left again, and at the bottom, for the whole garden sloped gently to a sluggish and rushy pond-like stream, was a meadow. We arrived at noon, and entered the gates out of the hot dust beneath the glitter of the dark-curtained windows. Seaton led me at once through the little garden gate to show me his tadpole pond, swarming with what, being myself not the least bit of a naturalist, I considered the most horrible creatures, of all shapes, consistencies, and sizes, but with whom Seaton seemed to be on the most intimate of terms. I can see his absorbed face now, as he sat on his heels and fished the slimy things out in his sallow palms. Wearying at last of his pets, we loitered about a while in a nameless fashion. Seaton seemed to be listening, or at any rate waiting, for something to happen, or for someone to come. But nothing did happen, and no one came. That was just like Seaton. Anyhow, the first view I got of his aunt was when, at the summons of a distant gong, we turned from the garden, very hungry and thirsty, to go into luncheon. We were approaching the house when Seaton suddenly came to a standstill. Indeed, I had always had the impression that he plucked at my sleeve. Something, at least, seemed to catch me back, as it were, as he cried, Look out! There she is! She was standing in an upper window which opened wide on a hinge and at first sight she looked an excessively tall and overwhelming figure. This, however, was mainly because the window reached all but to the floor of her bedroom. She was in reality rather an undersized woman, in spite of her long face and big head. She must have stood, I think, unusually still, with eyes fixed on us, though this impression may be due to Seaton's sudden warning and to my consciousness of the cautious and subdued air that had fallen on him at sight of her. I know that without the least reason in the world I felt a kind of guiltiness, as if I had been caught. There was a silvery star pattern sprinkled on her black silk dress, and even from the ground I could see the immense coils of her hair and the rings on her left hand, which was held fingering the small jet buttons of her bodice. She watched our united advance without stirring, until, imperceptibly, her eyes raised and lost themselves in the distance, so that it was out of an assumed reverie that she appeared suddenly to awaken to our presence beneath her when we drew close to the house. "'So this is your friend Mr. Smithers, I suppose,' she said, bobbing to me. "'Withers, aunt,' said Seaton. "'It's much the same,' she said, with eyes fixed on me. "'Come in, Mr. Withers.' 
and bring him along with you. She continued to gaze at me. At least, I think she did so. I know that the fixity of her scrutiny and her ironical Mr. made me feel peculiarly uncomfortable. But she was extremely kind and attentive to me, though perhaps her kindness and attention showed up more vividly against her complete neglect of Seaton. Only one remark that I have any recollection of she made to him. When I look on my nephew, Mr. Smithers, I realise that dust we are, and dust shall become. You are hot, dirty, and incorrigible, Arthur. She sat at the head of the table, Seaton at the foot, and I, before a wide waste of damask tablecloth, between them. It was an old and rather close dining-room, with windows thrown wide to the green garden and a wonderful cascade of fading roses. Miss Seaton's great chair faced this window, so that its rose-reflected light shone full on her yellowish face, and on just such chocolate eyes as my schoolfellows, except that hers were more than half covered by unusually long and heavy lids. There she sat, eating, with those sluggish eyes fixed for the most part on my face. Above them stood the deep-lined fork between her eyebrows, and above that the wide expanse of a remarkable brow beneath its strange, steep bank of hair. The lunch was copious, and consisted, I remember, of all such dishes as are generally considered mischievous and too good for the schoolboy digestion. Lobster mayonnaise, cold game sausages, an immense veal and ham pie fast with eggs and numberless delicious flavours, besides sauces, kickshaws, creams, and sweetmeats. We even had wine, a half-glass of old darkish sherry each. Miss Seaton enjoyed and indulged an enormous appetite. Her example, and a natural schoolboy veracity, soon overcame my nervousness of her, even to the extent of allowing me to enjoy, to the best of my bent, so rare a spread. Seaton was singularly modest. The greater part of his meal consisted of almonds and raisins, which he nibbled surreptitiously, and as if he found difficulty in swallowing them. I don't mean that Miss Seaton conversed with me. She merely scattered trenchant remarks, and now and then twinkled a baited question over my head. But her face was like a dense and involved accompaniment to her talk. She presently dropped the Mr. to my intense relief, and called me now Withers, or Wither, now Smithers, and even once towards the close of the meal distinctly Johnson, though how on earth my name suggested it, or whose face mine had reanimated in memory, I cannot conceive. "'And is Arthur a good boy at school, Mr. Wither?' was one of her many questions. "'Does he please his masters? Is he first in his class? What does the Reverend Dr. Gummidge think of him, eh?' I knew she was jeering at him, but her face was adamant against the least flicker of sarcasm or facetiousness. I gazed fixedly at a blushing crescent of lobster. "'I think you're eighth, aren't you, Seaton?' Seaton moved his small pupils towards his aunt, but she continued to gaze with a kind of concentrated detachment at me. "'Arthur will never make a brilliant scholar, I fear,' she said, lifting a dexterously burdened fork to her wide mouth. After luncheon she preceded me up to my bedroom. It was a jolly little bedroom, with a brass fender and rugs and a polished floor, on which it was possible, I afterwards found, to play snowshoes. Over the washstand was a little black-framed watercolour drawing, 
depicting a large eye with an extremely fish-like intensity in the spark of light on the dark pupil and in illuminated lettering beneath was printed very minutely thou god seest me followed by a long-looped monogram s s in the corner the other pictures were all of the sea brigs on blue water a schooner overtopping chalk cliffs a rock island of prodigious steepness with two tiny sailors dragging a monstrous boat up a shelf of beach this is the room withers my brother william died in when a boy admire the view i looked out of the window across treetops it was a day hot with sunshine over the green fields and the cattle were standing swishing their tails in the shallow water but the view at the moment was only exaggeratedly vivid because i was horribly dreading that she would presently inquire after my luggage and i had not brought even a toothbrush i need have had no fear hers was not that highly civilized type of mind that is stuffed with sharp material details nor could her ample presence be described as in the least motherly i would never consent to question a schoolfellow behind my nephew's back she said standing in the middle of the room but tell me smithers why is arthur so unpopular you i understand are his only close friend she stood in a dazzle of sun and out of it her eyes regarded me with such leaden penetration beneath their thick lids that i doubt if my face concealed the least thought from her but there there she added very suavely stooping her head a little don't trouble to answer me i never extort an answer boys are queer fish brains might perhaps have suggested his washing hands before luncheon but not my choice smithers god forbid and now perhaps you would like to go into the garden again i cannot actually see from here but i should not be surprised if arthur is now skulking behind that hedge he was i saw his head come out and take a rapid glance at the windows join him mr smithers we shall meet again i hope at the tea-table the afternoon i spend in retirement whether or not seaton and i had not been long engaged with the aid of two green switches in riding round and round a lumbering old grey horse we found in the meadow before a rather bunched-up figure appeared walking along the field-path on the other side of the water with a magenta parasol studiously lowered in our direction throughout her slow progress as if that were the magnetic needle and we the fixed pole seaton at once lost all nerve in his riding at the next lurch of the old mare's heels he toppled over into the grass and i slid off the sleek broad back to join him where he stood rubbing his shoulder and sourly watching the rather pompous figure till it was out of sight was that your aunt seaton i inquired but not till then he nodded why didn't she take any notice of us then she never does why not oh she knows all right without that's the damn awful part of it seaton was about the only fellow at gummidge's who ever had the ostentation to use bad language he had suffered for it too but it wasn't i think bravado i believe he really felt certain things more intensely than most of the other fellows and they were generally things that fortunate and average people do not feel at all the peculiar quality for instance of the british schoolboy's imagination i tell you withers he went on moodily slinking across the meadow with his hands covered up in his pockets she sees everything and what she doesn't see 
she knows without but how i said not because i was much interested but because the afternoon was so hot and tiresome and purposeless and it seemed more of a bore to remain silent seaton turned gloomily and spoke in a very low voice don't appear to be talking of her if you wouldn't mind it's because she's in league with the devil he nodded his head and stooped to pick up a round flat pebble i tell you he said still stooping you fellows don't realize what it is i know i'm a bit close and all that but so would you be if you had that old hag listening to every thought you think i looked at him then turned and surveyed one by one the windows of the house where's your pater i said awkwardly dead ages and ages ago and my mother too she's not my aunt by rights what is she then i mean she's not my mother's sister because my grandmother married twice and she is one of the first lot i don't know what you call her but anyhow she's not my real aunt she gives you plenty of pocket money seaton looked steadfastly at me out of his flat eyes she can't give me what's mine when i come of age half of the whole lot will be mine and what's more he turned his back on the house i'll make her hand over every blessed shilling of it i put my hands in my pockets and stared at seaton is it much he nodded who told you he got suddenly very angry a darkish red came into his cheeks his eyes glistened but he made no answer and we loitered listlessly about the garden until it was time for tea seaton's aunt was wearing an extraordinary kind of lace jacket when we sidled sheepishly into the drawing-room together she greeted me with a heavy and protracted smile and bade me bring a chair close to the little table i hope arthur has made you feel at home she said as she handed me my cup in her crooked hand he don't talk much to me but then i'm an old woman you must come again wither and draw him out of his shell you old snail she wagged her head at seaton who sat munching cake and watching her intently and we must correspond perhaps she nearly shut her eyes at me you must write and tell me everything behind the creature's back i confess i found her rather disquieting company the evening drew on lamps were brought by a man with a nondescript face and very quiet footsteps seaton was told to bring out the chessmen and we played a game she and i with her big chin thrust over the board at every move as she gloated over the pieces and occasionally croaked check after which she would sit back inscrutably staring at me but the game was never finished she simply hemmed me defencelessly in with a cloud of men that held me impotent and yet one and all refused to administer to my poor flustered old king a merciful coup de grace there she said as the clock struck ten a drawn game withers we are very evenly matched a very creditable defence withers you know your room there's supper on a tray in the dining-room don't let the creature overeat himself the gong will sound three-quarters of an hour before a punctual breakfast she held out her cheek to seaton and he kissed it with obvious perfunctoriness with me she shook hands an excellent game she said cordially but my memory is poor and she swept the pieces helter-skelter into the box the result will never be known she raised her great head far back eh it was a kind of challenge and i could only murmur 
oh i was absolutely in a hole you know when she burst out laughing and waved us both out of the room seaton and i stood and ate our supper with one candlestick to light us in a corner of the dining-room well and how would you like it he said very softly after cautiously poking his head round the doorway like what being spied on every blessed thing you do and think i shouldn't like it at all i said if she does and yet you let her smash you up at chess i didn't let her i said indignantly well you funked it then and i didn't funk it either i said she's so jolly clever with her knights seaton stared fixedly at the candle you wait that's all he said slowly and we went upstairs to bed i had not been long in bed i think when i was cautiously awakened by a touch on my shoulder and there was seaton's face in the candlelight and his eyes looking into mine what's up i said rising quickly to my elbow don't scurry he whispered or she'll hear i'm sorry for waking you but i didn't think you'd be asleep so soon why what's the time then seaton wore what was then rather unusual a night suit and he hauled his big silver watch out of the pocket in his jacket it's a quarter to twelve i never get to sleep before twelve not here what do you do then oh i read and listen listen seaton stared into his candle flame as if he were listening even then you can't guess what it is all you read in ghost stories that's all rot you can't see much with us but you know all the same know what why that there there who's there i asked fretfully glancing at the door why in the house it swarms with them just you stand still and listen outside my bedroom door in the middle of the night i have dozens of times they're all over the place look here seaton i said you asked me to come here and i don't mind chucking up a leave just to oblige you and because i'd promised but don't get talking a lot of rot that's all or you'll know the difference when we get back don't fret he said coldly turning away i shan't be at school long and what's more you're here now and there isn't anybody else to talk to i'll chance the other look here seaton i said you may think you're going to scare me with a lot of stuff about voices and all that but i'll just thank you to clear out and you may please yourself about pottering about all night he made no answer he was standing by the dressing-table looking across his candle into the looking-glass he turned and stared slowly round the walls even this room's nothing more than a coffin i suppose she told you it's all exactly the same as when my brother william died trust her for that and good luck to him say i look at that he raised his candle close to the little water-colour i have mentioned there's hundreds of eyes like that in the house and even if god does see you he takes precious good care you don't see him and it's just the same with them i tell you what withers i'm getting sick of all this i shan't stand it much longer the house was silent within and without and even in the yellowish radiance of the candle a faint silver showed through the open window on my blind i slipped off the bedclothes wide awake and sat irresolute on the bedside i know you're only guying me i said angrily but why is the house full of 
What you say? Why do you hear? What you do hear? Tell me that, you silly foal. Seaton sat down on a chair and rested his candlestick on his knee. He blinked at me calmly. She brings them, he said, with lifted eyebrows. Who? Your aunt? He nodded. How? I told you, he answered pettishly. She's in league. You don't know. She as good as killed my mother. I know that. But it's not only her by a long chalk. She just sucks you dry. I know. And that's what she'll do for me. Because I'm like her. Like my mother, I mean. She simply hates to see me alive. I wouldn't be like that old she-wolf for a million pounds. And so, he broke off with a comprehensive wave of his candlestick. They're always here. Ah, oh, my boy, wait till she's dead. She'll hear something then, I can tell you. It's all very well now, but wait till then. I wouldn't be in her shoes when she has to clear out for something. Don't you go and believe I care for ghosts or whatever you like to call them. We're all in the same box. We're all under her thumb. He was looking almost nonchalantly at the ceiling at the moment when I saw his face change saw his eyes suddenly drop like shot birds and fix themselves on the cranny of the door he had just left ajar. Even from where I sat, I could see his colour change. He went greenish. He crouched without stirring, simply fixed. And I, scarcely daring to breathe, sat with creeping skin, simply watching him. His hands relaxed, and he gave a kind of sigh. Was that one? I whispered, with a timid show of jauntiness. He looked round, opened his mouth, and nodded. What? I said. He jerked his thumb with meaningful eyes, and I knew that he meant his aunt had been there, listening at our door-cranny. Look here, Seaton, I said once more, wriggling to my feet. You may think I'm a jolly noodle, just as you please, but your aunt has been civil to me and all that, and I don't believe a word you say about her. That's all never did. Every fellow's a bit off his pluck at night, and you may think it a fine sport to try your rubbish on me. I heard your aunt come upstairs before I fell asleep, and I bet you a level tanner she's in bed now. What's more, you can keep your blessed ghosts to yourself. It's a guilty conscience, I should think. Seaton looked at me curiously, without answering for a moment. I'm not a liar, Withers, but I'm not going to quarrel either. You're the only chap I care a button for, or, at any rate, you're the only chap that's ever come here, and it's something to tell a fellow what you feel. I don't care a fig for fifty thousand ghosts, although I swear on my solemn oath that I know they're here. But she... He turned deliberately. You laid a tanner she's in bed with us? Well, I know different. She's never in bed much of the night, and I'll prove it too, just to show you I'm not such a nolly as you think I am. Come on. Come on where? Why, to see. I hesitated. He opened a large cupboard and took out a small dark dressing gown and a kind of shawl jacket. He threw the jacket on the bed and put on the gown. His dusky face was colourless, and I could see by the way he fumbled at the sleeves he was shivering. But it was no good showing the white feather now so I threw the tasselled shawl over my shoulders and, leaving our candle brightly burning on the chair, we went out together and stood in the corridor. 
Now then, listen, Seaton whispered. We stood leaning over the staircase. It was like leaning over a well, so still and chill the air was all around us. But presently, as I suppose happens in most old houses, began to echo and answer in my ears a medley of infinite small stirrings and whisperings. Now out of the distance an old timber would relax its fibres, or a scurry die away behind the perishing wainscot. But amid and behind such sounds as these, I seemed to begin to be conscious, as it were, of the lightest of footfalls, sounds as faint as the vanishing remembrances of voices in a dream. Seaton was all in obscurity except his face. Out of that his eyes gleamed darkly, watching me. "'You'd hear too in time, my fine soldier,' he muttered. "'Come on!' He descended the stairs, slipping his lean fingers lightly along the balusters. He turned to the right at the loop, and I followed him barefooted along a thickly carpeted corridor. At the end stood a door ajar, and from here we very stealthily and in complete blackness ascended five narrow stairs. Seaton, with immense caution, slowly pushed open a door, and we stood together looking into a great pool of duskiness, out of which, lit by the feeble clearness of a nightlight, rose a vast bed. A heap of clothes lay on the floor. Beside them two slippers dozed, with noses each to each, two yards apart. Somewhere a little clock ticked huskily. There was a rather close smell of lavender and eau de cologne, mingled with the fragrance of ancient sachets, soap, and drugs. Yet it was a scent even more peculiarly commingled than that. And the bed! I stared warily in. It was mounded gigantically, and it was empty. Seaton turned a vague, pale face, all shadows. What did I say? he muttered. Who's, who's the fool now, I say? How are we going to get back without meeting her, I say? Answer me that! Oh, I wish to goodness you hadn't come here with us! He stood visibly shivering in his skimpy gown, and could hardly speak for his teeth chattering. And very distinctly, in the hush that followed his whisper, I heard approaching a faint, unhurried, voluminous rustle. Seaton clutched my arm, dragged me to the right across the room to a large cupboard, and drew the door close to on us. And presently, as with bursting lungs, I peeped out into the long, low, curtained bedroom, waddled in that wonderful great head and body. I can see her now, all patched and lined with shadow, her tied-up hair, she must have had enormous quantities of it for so old a woman, her heavy lids above those flat, slow, vigilant eyes. She just passed across my ken in the vague dusk, but the bed was out of sight. We waited on and on, listening to the clock's muffled ticking. Not the ghost of a sound rose up from the great bed. Either she lay archly listening, or slept a sleep serener than an infant's. And when, it seemed, we had been hours in hiding, and were cramped, chilled, and half-suffocated, we crept out on all fours, with terror knocking at our ribs, and so down the five narrow stairs and back to the little candle-lit blue-and-gold bedroom. Once there, Seaton gave in. He sat livid on a chair with closed eyes. "'Here,' I said, shaking his arm. "'I'm going to bed. 
I've had enough of this foolery. I'm going to bed. His lids quivered, but he made no answer. I poured out some water into my basin, and, with that cold pictured azure eye fixed on us, bespattered Seaton's sallow face and forehead and dabbled his hair. He presently sighed and opened fish-like eyes. Come on, I said. Don't get shamming. There's a good chap. Get on my back, if you like, and I'll carry you into your bedroom. He waved me away and stood up. So, with my candle in one hand, I took him under the arm and walked him along according to his direction down the corridor. His was a much dingier room than mine, and littered with boxes, paper, cages, and clothes. I huddled him into bed and turned to go, and suddenly, I can hardly explain it now, a kind of cold and deadly terror swept over me. I almost ran out of the room, with eyes fixed rigidly in front of me, blew out my candle, and buried my head under the bedclothes. End of Seaton's Aunt, Part 1 Recording by Rafe Ball